Welcome to Nudge Talk Asia, behavioral science insights that improve business and lives. Here's your host, Paolo Mercado. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Nudge Talk Asia. I'm Paolo Mercado and I lead the behavioral science practice of Ogilvy Consulting in Asia. I've spent most of my career applying behavioral insights in marketing and advertising across different markets around the world. With Ogilvy, I'm now part of a global team of behavioral science specialists who apply behavioral insights to improve business and lives. Why do people view the world so differently? Different people can interpret the same facts in radically different ways. Many even insist on their own alternative facts when the real facts disagree with their views. Can behavioral science decode how people make sense of the world? Today, for our very first guest, I'm proud to welcome the president and founder of the Ogilvy Center for Behavioral Science in the United States, Mr. Christopher Graves. Chris is here to talk about how to decode your customer's sense-making genome with an exciting tool called the Cognitive Profiler. Chris invented this tool working together with Kantar, and he has used it extensively to decode issues such as vaccine hesitancy, smoking cessation, mental health, and addictions. I must also add that while Chris is an American by citizenship, I consider him also as someone who's Asian at heart, having spent many years in Asia as head of Ogilvy PR and in media as well. Welcome, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paolo. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Chris, you spent a long time in media and PR. So could you tell us a bit more about your story? How did you get interested and not only interested, how did you become an expert in behavioral science? Well, like many terrific things in life at the intersection of obsession and timing, perhaps a bit of just a happenstance. And for me, I had spent more than 20 years in the news business. As you mentioned, in Asia, I I lived in Asia for 12 years. I was one of the founders of a TV network called Asia Business News, or ABN, which later merged and became CNBC Asia. After more than 20 years in the news business, ended up joining Ogilvy while living in Hong Kong. And it came out of an experience that, again, was an intersection of interest and of timing that the wonderful former chairman of Ogilvy, at that point, he was the chairman of the group Ogilvy Group in Asia, saw me give a talk and offered me the job of CEO in Asia, which I accepted. And so I've been with Ogilvy nearly 18 years now. But starting about 10 years ago, I had a deep, deep obsession in terms of uh, behavioral science. It started with behavioral economics and behavioral finance and narrative. I wondered why we had not better understood the science of narrative, what makes a great story, but beyond great, what makes an effective story, a story that works. And so I did a really obsessive deep dive into something called narrative transportation, which is the science, brain and behavior science of how people make sense of and how they are moved by stories, by narrative. 
and ended up going on such a deep dive on that that it led me down many other paths in behavioral science related to health behaviors, for example, and ended up winning a fellowship called the Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio Residency. And there I had the great fortune of living in a 16th century villa in Italy with 12 other people, most of whom were behavioral scientists. And it allowed us to have incredible discussions. And at the time, I was working on a way to sort of codify the hundreds of human cognitive biases and through an app, make that simple for lay people so that marketers and communicators without having to get a PhD in behavioral science might be able to make use of behavioral science to boost the effectiveness of all their communications. And about five years ago within Ogilvy started the Ogilvy Center for Behavioral Science simultaneous to colleagues in uh, London who were doing something very similar. And so we all knitted this up around the world to create a global community that is really at this intersection of behavioral science, brand, communications. And so it's more than just the science of behavior. It's also brand and communications and narrative meets behavior and brain science. I like very much how you talk about it, Chris, because when I talk to people about behavioral science, many of them have read you know, some of the books like Thinking Fast and Slow or Predictably Irrational and, and other books which talk about nudges as well. And then people jump into things like, oh, what nudge can I use or what cognitive bias can I use to move and influence people? But you speak of narrative and the power of narrative to influence and to essentially move and, and change people's hearts and minds. So why do narratives work? Narratives work, and we've known this intuitively for a very long time, uh, because that's how humans make sense of very complicated things. We are not like computers. We don't compartmentalize and have files in the brain. It's actually more brilliant, but messier than that. And so we know that humans make sense of things that way. Sometimes it aligns with evidence and data, and sometimes it conflicts with evidence and data. So we have been deemed a predictably irrational species. But I would go back a moment and look at how old our brain is, actually. I mean, it constantly evolves, but the best guess of evolutionary scholars, the current human brain has been wired basically the same way for the last 40,000 years. Now, our environment has changed a lot in 40,000 years. And you think about 40,000 years ago, that was even prior to us becoming farmers. We were really hunters. And so we were wired spectacularly well to succeed at killing, running away, eating, and reproducing. But beyond that, our software wasn't really very well equipped. And so now you get into a world of social media and artificial reality and virtual reality and complications in time. Our brain struggles. It's not about intelligence, but our brain struggles to make sense of all that. And so in that struggle, pop up these little software glitches in our brain, which behavioral scientists call cognitive biases. We use little shortcuts. I mean, the data is too much. 
So we, you know, use little shortcuts that the scientists call heuristics. Well, they're not inherently bad. In fact, they really can be very useful if you need to get you know, something done very quickly, danger or an emergency or a crisis or routine, things you do over and over and over again where you kind of go on autopilot. And that's okay. But they are susceptible to error. And, you know, you would have seen in those books, for example, Thinking Fast and Slow, that the fast thinking, the system one thinking, is something we do 90 to 95% of the time. And it serves us pretty darn well. It's just quick, routine, automatic kind of thinking. But it doesn't serve us well when it's something very complex or complicated and we need deep reflection. And for that, we use our brain very little of the time for that deep, deep, deep reflection. And so what we're able to do in identifying these software glitches in terms of how humans make decisions is figure out patches and workarounds to help people arrive at better, more effective solutions. And that in itself can be controversial because people can say better for whom? If you mean better for a client trying to sell them something, that may not be necessarily better for them. So along the whole way, we have to be very careful about the ethics of it as well. This isn't some kind of subliminal programming of their brain. It actually is much more empathetic, I would say, than that. Let me go back to one thing you said about who is this for, who's doing the influencing, or who's going to be using these techniques, let's say, of applying behavioral science to influence people. Because one of the things that I encounter here in Asia, when I talk to potential clients and I talk about behavioral science, some of them become very, you know, very skeptical uh, about it. So say I'm a hard-nosed business owner in Asia who demands to see an ROI for every investment. And they've never heard of behavioral science before. How can you explain the benefit of behavioral science to business? The benefit of behavioral science to business in a very hard-nosed way is a reduction of waste, waste of all kinds, time, money, personnel, and a reduction or an increase in effectiveness. So the behavioral science power is reduction of waste, increased in effectiveness. And let's look at why that's so. There are a lot of things that we have been doing because of past practices, that's the way they've always been done, or they just make sense. Our gut tells us, our intuition tells us, this has got to be the right thing to do. The problem with that is that the data shows that that's not quite accurate. There are a lot of things that we as humans think are the right things to do that actually aren't, or they've been accepted conventional wisdom about how we do what we do, and it's not really the best way. So what behavioral science allows us to do is two things. One, it reveals the real why of human behavior. Because one of the big challenges in research, particularly qualitative research, is that people will tell you reasons why they did things or do things or will do things. But decision-making happens on the conscious level. And we rationalize it by saying, well, I did this, this, and this. You go to buy a new car. Let's say you're going out to buy a new car, and in that you say to yourself, well, I'm going to look up the gas efficiency, the miles per gallon, 
I'm going to look up the crash tests in this new car, and I'm going to buy the best car from all these measurements points of view. And then you go and you actually see the car and versus another car, and you fall in love with the design, with the feel, with the way it makes you feel, with the perception of how you think others see you when you've got this car, and everything might change. And it's true of really big purchases like real estate as well. And so it's not all rational. And so the real why part of behavioral science lays out all of these sort of software glitches in our very old operating system and software, our brain, and allows us to kind of do little course corrections to correct for those glitches. The second thing that behavioral science presents us with is an opportunity to reveal the hidden who of individuals and individuals at large scale. Each of us, Paolo, has a hidden wiring. Part of it is from birth. Part of it is from how we grew up and our cultural filters. But it becomes a very, very strong hidden wiring that filters, distorts, and has a great impact on you know, our identity, the people we associate with, and in turn, the worldviews we accept, the choices we make, and our preferences. Everything from politics to pricing. But that hidden who was hidden. And so over 30 or 40 years, behavioral scientists have one by one by one figured out the little genes in this genome, the little building blocks that make us who we are when it comes to making sense to the world. And what we did starting five years ago was for the very first time integrate all of these previous findings into one seamless test that we could give to individuals and decode their sense-making genome. Then that gives us a much better picture of what will work for whom. When people today ask me, for example, for behavioral science related to health, what will work best? What will work best to encourage people to wear masks in a pandemic, for example? And my immediate question back is, for whom? Because the flaw is this notion that we could come up with a big winner for everybody, a generic winner, whether it's a message or an advertisement or an engagement or an experience. And actually, it's much more like matchmaking. We have to do a much better job of matching the experience, the framing, the word choice even, with how each individual is wired on the inside. And so those two things really are when you think of them together, give us a big boost in effectiveness rather than just kind of trying this and trying that. We have a running start on what to try with people that'll work better. So you spoke about two things. One is really getting to the real why and not just accepting or, or not just directly asking people what are your reasons and accepting that at face value. So let me just dig on that one a bit more. So what does behavioral science do differently from traditional market research that allows it to get to the real why much better? Right. So traditional research asks you, usually on a Likert scale, some called Likert scale, Likert scale, often, you know, like one to seven, how much you agree or disagree with a statement, for example. 
example. And they'll ask you, you know, do you buy a car based on how it looks or more on the price, for example? And people will reply to those and they'll try their best usually to reply to those. But as I said earlier, many times people actually don't know because it's below their conscious level and their wiring, why they do these things. So they give you a response in traditional marketing that's you know, to your explicit question. The thing about the behavioral science implicit test, for example, I might ask you, Paolo, when you were growing up, think back when you were a young boy, were you more likely to be a rule follower who was made very uncomfortable by other kids who might break the rules or were you somebody who was really willing to you know, bend or break the rules, even if it mean you got into trouble for doing so? Which one were you? I'm the boring rule follower. <laughs> that was me <laughs> growing up. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the beginning of a test called regulatory focus. And regulatory focus is whether each one of us is more wired to be prevention or promotion. And it can be temporary or it can be your trait, meaning your how you make decisions throughout your life. So for everything that I'm talking about, remember that there are exceptions and the humans are very you know, complex and messy things. None of this is easy and all that clear cut. But this test, regulatory focus, and there are shades of it. There's a health regulatory focus, for example. And so when you find out that somebody is wired more to be prevention like you, and then I begin to think, well, how might I reframe everything that I offer you or present you as choices that are more comfortable for somebody who is wired for prevention? Let me give you an example with toothpaste, prevention and promotion. If you're highly wired for promotion, and that means you're somebody willing, you, you want to try to make great gains and achievement, you know, clear an ever higher bar in your life, always going for the next next. And you don't care if you fail, that's okay, or take risks versus somebody who's you know, wired for prevention, which is much more about take your time, but get it right. Let's avoid harm and let's avoid mistakes. Now you think about that wiring. It turns out that a toothpaste that is marketed to you as tooth whitening is much more of an appeal to somebody of a promotion mindset. And a toothpaste that is marketed as cavity prevention or healthy gums is much more appealing to somebody with a prevention mindset. You know, that may seem a little bit surface level, but you can go very deep on this with behaviors as well, including, you know, pandemic behaviors. Whether somebody accepts a vaccine or wears a mask may in part be dependent on whether they're wired to be more prevention or more promotion in their regulatory focus. Now, there are dozens of these kinds of measures. So when you think about how we tailor, it's not just the real why, which is by and large true of all humans. For example, when you talk about the future, if you ask people in traditional research, yes, I care about the future, but actually in their behavior, they don't. They always come back to the present. It's called present bias or sometimes called hyperbolic discounting or temporal discounting. But when push comes to shove and you have a choice, it's the present that almost always wins for humans. Now, some humans are wired a little differently to be much stronger thinkers about future consequences. And those people are less present biased. But as a 
species, this real why, we can see a number of sort of potholes in the road that people can hit. Yeah. So what you're saying is then there is a hardwiring that applies to everybody, which is the real why. But then there are a lot of nuances depending on how you grew up, your environment, your cultural upbringing, and maybe even your genetic makeup that makes you more individual. And that's what you're trying to decode with the cognitive profiler. And you've mentioned the regulatory focus uh, frames of uh, promotion and prevention as one of the lenses that you use in the cognitive profiler. Would, would there be any others that, that are really something that would allow us to discriminate behaviors? Because it's interesting for me how you equated it to toothpaste, which sounds very simple, but from a marketing point of view, in fact, you've described two critically important segments in the toothpaste category, the whitening and brightening category and the values of that. And then you also have very related to that, the breath freshening category, and then also the tooth decay, tartar prevention, et cetera, or even gum disease prevention. So you can see clearly how the cognitive profiler could help with segmentation. But what, what are other examples of the cognitive profiler lenses that, that have proven to be helpful in segmentation? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because there are just so many of them and they're wonderful. And it's think of them as lenses. And imagine you're going to the eye doctor and they say, put up a lens. Is it better this way or is it better that way? And what happens is each one of these tests we give is like a lens. And it brings the individual into sharper and sharper focus with each lens as we stack them up and they overlap. So while the tests are different, they also overlap. And give you an example, I mean, when you were talking about prevention and promotion and we were talking about toothpaste, but think of it also for things like, oh, cars. If you're much more promotion oriented, you might go for something a bit sportier or a bit flashier. If you're prevention oriented, you might look for this crash test first. There's a kind of segmentation leading to a kind of persona building that is these building blocks of hidden who rather than traditional demographics. Now, if you look at other areas, even a law firm we worked with wondered if there are better ways when they went for new business prospecting and we use prevention and promotion the following way. When the law firm is working with a client to try to mitigate any penalties with regulators or fees, then that was a prevention-focused marketing. But when they are talking about the legality of autonomous vehicles and cryptocurrencies and new areas, that was a promotion thinking. And so instead of just being a law firm with incredibly qualified lawyers with these practices, they can now begin to target based on prevention and promotion motivated clients. Now, other tools you asked about, other lenses in the hidden hoop. One big one is called personality trait profiles. Now, let me just talk a little bit here because there's a lot of confusion on that and maybe skepticism about, is it fake? Does it work? Is it like a fortune cookie or is it science? A lot of companies in the past have used Myers-Briggs. And you say, well, what are you? Uh, I am an ENTP, you know, or INTJ. And they've come to really, really trust in this and they see themselves in it. But I have to warn you, the brain and behavioral scientists have never seen Myers-Briggs as a genuine science. 
They instead, for the last 40 years, have something called personality trait science. Now, you'll find it under the following names. It is sometimes called OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N, and it's an acronym, and I'll tell you about that. It's sometimes called five-factor because there are five factors in personality, or big five personality. It's even called NEO sometimes, N-E-O. But here's what it is in a nutshell. And think of it as these five with OCEAN. O stands for openness to experience. It doesn't mean openness like transparency. It means do you seek variety all the time or are you more comforted by the routine of repeating things? So O, openness to experience, is, you know, say on uh, the way to personify this for a moment, imagine Her Majesty the Queen of England versus Sir Richard Branson. Now, the Queen of England would be very low on openness to new experience. It's all about long-held traditions and rituals. But, you know, Sir Richard Branson is going to jump into a rocket and go into space or do whatever the next neck is, right? So that's very different, and it's a kind of spectrum. We would measure you for that. The second one, C, is conscientiousness. And if anybody's a fan of The Simpsons, think of low conscientiousness more like Homer Simpson and high consciousness more like his daughter. Lisa, yeah. Real follower. You know, she's going to get her homework done and get an A+. Plus. As somebody who's low conscientiousness is not really fussed about hitting deadlines or, you know, doing all that's required. They bend the rules a lot, you know, so that's C. The E is extroversion, and we all kind of know what that is. But you sometimes get introverts cast in extrovert roles, right? So you might be a marketer or a CEO and be an introvert, but you're in what is considered an extroversion role. So it's not about your role. It's about how it makes you feel. So people who are very introverted are very fatigued in social situations, and they recharge through quiet reflection, reading, listening to music, et cetera. But there are a lot of associations that go beyond just the introversion, extroversion. So it's important to know. The A in ocean is agreeableness. If you think of it this way, somebody who you work with might come across as skeptical, cynical, you know, they don't really gush warmth that you might wonder, you know, are they grumpy? So low on agreeableness is that kind of personality trait. High on agreeableness is that person you meet that says, hey, Paolo, great to meet you. We ought to go out and get a cup of coffee. Feels like they're warm and engaging. And But the downside of high on agreeableness is they're immediately much more trusting and they go along with the norm and conformity. Whereas people low on agreeableness, they don't conform as much and are much tougher to convince things. So if you think about somebody who's more susceptible to fake news, for example, somebody much higher on agreeableness might be because they're not, you know, pushing everything that they read or hear or see. And then finally, the N in ocean is for neuroticism. And that doesn't mean you're clinically neurotic. It means how much you worry about things, how anxious you get about things. And it's a kind of, think of it as a low bar or a high bar. So when you're low in neuroticism, you know, people might see you as very chill, happy-go-lucky, 
don't worry about things a lot. And when you're very high on neuroticism, it's the kind of person that may wake up in the middle of the night, replay conversations. Why was that person saying that to me? Are they mad at me? And so when you put all of these together, the O-C-E-A-N, it's a wonderful set of building blocks. And certain combinations go with certain behaviors and choices and preferences. And so this is where it becomes really useful to marketers that if I know, for example, you're very high on openness, then I might talk to you about the new experience you could have with this product or service. But if you're very low on openness, I might talk to you about the comfort and security of trust of knowing that this is going to give you the same experience every single time. And so it's really about not changing your mission or your values, but how you articulate them to different people. Now, that's just one. And we use like 30 different lenses like this. Another one, which is really important, even at a cultural level, is called locus of control. That means who has the control in your life to change things, to make things happen? And there are people who are more external, meaning I don't really have power. I'm part of the bureaucracy or my faith has taught me that actually it is fate or it is God's choice. It is not my choice. And that's called external locus of control. You might believe in luck and, and hazard. I mean, you know, in my 12 years in Asia, the power of fortune and luck was huge, whether it's colors like red or numbers like eight. And these are things taken very seriously. So it's not meant to ridicule in any way. So some people are wired to think that what's going to happen to them in their life comes from outside of them, external. Then there are those who are wired to be internal. And they're like Steve Jobs was. They don't care about focus groups. They don't care about what other people think. They just take control and believe they have the power to affect every single outcome. Now, imagine you're marketing to two different people, one who's extremely external, one who's extremely internal. How different to make them comfortable, you would have to propose things to them. You know, these lenses are, are fascinating. And at one level, you know, they allow us to be much more empathetic because if I can decode you, I can mirror you. I can, can talk or express things in a way that are more comfortable to you. Finally, there's an incredibly powerful one that is behind the so-called culture wars you see in places like the United States. You wonder how society can come apart at the seams in a culture war over something like wearing a mask or even eating red meat if you're you know, in the food service business. Well, they're tied to a hidden force called cultural cognition. This is your worldview. And you may have a hard time expressing it in traditional research, but in behavioral science research, it implicitly draws it out. As an example, if I ask somebody, do you think that it's really the obligation of each individual for the outcome on their life, whether they're poor or don't have a great job, it's get a better education, work harder, go to night school, that's on you. You know, that's a very individualistic worldview where people believe that all accountability is on you and your family, not on society, not on big safety nets from the government. Meanwhile, people who are opposite are very communitarian. 
are collectivists, and they believe that not about competing against one another, but the greater good for the outcome for the most people. And they worry most about the most vulnerable people and take care of them first. Well, you can see if you're wired that differently, how you would clash over issues or even how you would make sense of a brand, a brand that appeals to a very driven individual who is always striving for personal attainment, who believes that outcomes are on you, not anybody else, versus an individual who believes that it's about harmony and about getting along and making sure the most vulnerable and the weakest are cared for. Very different brand positions. Wow. It's quite mind-blowing the number of and the richness of the variables that you are measuring in the cognitive profiler. I have a couple of questions, Chris. One is more theoretical and cultural in nature. Is this a universal model? Is this applicable to Asia or is it uh, primarily created in the West and therefore applicable only in the West? Have you had experience actually measuring Asian populations with a cognitive profiler? And what are the learnings from those studies? So there are differences clearly in cultures. So if, for example, when we were just talking about individualistic cultures versus communitarian or collectivist cultures, it is clear that the United States, for example, is a very individualist culture overall. Not everybody living there, but overall, compared to other national cultures around the world, it is very individualistic. Whereas many of the cultures in Southeast Asia, for example, are very communitarian. It's the way you're inculcated from being a child brought up all the way through to the behavior in school, whether it's a group consensus at the company or whether warring individuals for a meritocracy, you can definitely see big cultural differences. And within that, therefore, you might see individuals in that culture more often gravitate towards that culture. So you would probably find more people more comfortable with a communitarian approach to life or a brand in Southeast Asia or East Asia versus say UK, United States, or even Australia as a kind of Western stereotype. That is true. But when you get into that individual wiring, things like personality, that has been tested in about every country on earth. And in aggregate, you might see slight differences from one country to another, but it's only because it's in aggregate, because you're adding up each individual bottom up as opposed to top down. So there are indexes you can use. One is called a Hofsted index. And you can see this online where Hofsted for decades was a scientist who ranked every country in some of these cultural attributes. However, take it with a grain of salt. There, you know, the joy of what we do with our cognitive profiler is that it is individuals at scale, not a top-down stereotype. So the answer to your question about skews between cultures, there definitely are, particularly at that aggregate level as a whole country. But when you dive down into individuals, you will find individuals of all the flavors of personality traits I talk you through in every country. You will find individuals who are more internal or external locus of control in every country. You will find them a regulatory focus, prevention versus promotion in every country. 
So it's important not to just stop at that sort of generalized country level or cultural. That's why it's important to dive down for segmentation, for personas, and then much more effective marketing to do it from the bottom up. Now, you don't end up with billions of permutations. While humans are very complex and complicated, they cluster. So you can still create a few clusters for marketing and for segmentation, for example, of somebody who's very high in openness to new experience, but also who is very promotion-oriented in their choices. And you can see how they would go neatly together. Somebody who is open to experience is willing, like a promotion focus, to try new things and take risks. Whereas somebody who is very low to openness may be more prevention focused and therefore they're more comforted by avoiding mistakes and harm. So it is both. There is both a cultural filter and skew, but you have to be careful not to stop there. That's too general. You go dig into this hidden who through the cognitive profiler with building blocks of individuals from the bottom up, and then you have a much richer, much more usable segmentation process. I have one very practical question. It, it, with all of these variables that you're diving into, it sounds like a very heavy tool. It sounds like something that will take several rounds of surveys and qualitative groups to unearth. So how practical is a cognitive profiler? Yeah, it's a great question because often a relationship with you know scientific studies or social science studies, cultural studies, that in order to get more accuracy, you need more breadth and depth. But more breadth and depth means, oh my God, you know, how many people will sit there for hours of a battery of tests? And now you've got a natural bias because the kind of person who would sit there for hours of tests is not like everybody else. So you automatically have a selection bias. So you have to be very careful that you're not collecting what they used to call mall zombies, who are people who will do every test for you, but not really your customer. And that's why every time in the real world of behavioral science that there is a proven test, the first effort is to shrink it and see if it's still accurate. And so it's a process of shrinking the test and testing the accuracy against the long version. And when you get to a good trade-off, it's a short test with maybe 80% of the accuracy of the long version. So it's worth it because you, you, know, you can't just keep testing people day and night forever and ever. So that's usually what we end up doing is test the test and constantly try to improve by getting it shorter, quicker, without losing too much accuracy on it. So we do create shorter versions of things. For example, personality trait science, you can find questionnaires that may be 300 questions long. There is also a 10 question version. The question is, well, how much accuracy do I lose in the 10 question version versus the 300 question version? And that's where you begin to see, well, if it's 65% as accurate, but it's only 10 questions, is that worth it? And so it's a trade-off. And we look at those trade-offs depending on response rates, completion rates, and we're constantly tracking that. Now, second, we built in little algorithms to tell us if people are cheating. Because one of the, you know, our tests often run between 25 and 45 minutes. They're substantial tests. They're not just a little internet, you know, celebrity kind of test. 
So when you do that, you want to make sure somebody is being fairly thoughtful and responding. So we build in algorithms that find if people are cheating by just going, yeah, five, five, five to answering every question, or if they're ripping through it too quickly. So we can actually measure dwell time, how long they're thinking or reading about each question, and algorithms that look for patterns where they're getting lazy and just answering the same thing over and over again. And that's really important too. But we do need a substantial test because it is the human is so complex that where we go wrong is dumbing things down to too short a test where you get nothing really usable. And it is beyond the test. After you get this test, you have this enormous pool of data on each individual and as a collection. Now, just an ethical caution here. We always follow the strictest of rules in collecting data and in using data. Uh, because it's just simply not fair and downright creepy if people don't know that you're collecting data and don't know how you're using the data. So we're strong proponents of that in doing all this. But the answer to your question on this is it can be made shorter as a kind of lighter version, but you have to understand the trade-offs of accuracy with brevity. And as long as you're okay with that, that's okay. But below a certain level, we won't stand behind the findings because we just think they don't think they're scientifically credible. And we want the scientific community, not just the marketing community, to believe in this and to accept it and, and say, yes, this is a valid instrument. I think it's still impressive that you're able to get it between, of, of course, uh, uh, towards 45 minutes may seem very long, but 25 minutes in fact, it's not a very long time to spend on a survey. And there are surveys that are easily much longer than that. And to get the kind of psychological richness that you have in, the, in that short 25 to 30 minute time period is, is actually quite impressive. You know? and, and I hear you about the ethic. That's been five years really of testing at large scale to be able to see what are the driver questions versus others. Which questions may we, we constantly look at what can we cut back on rather than constantly, we also add at the top end when we discover new tests, uh, for example, fake news is such a problem now, how much does your internal wiring, does that hidden who lead some people to be more vulnerable to not only believing fake news, but propagating or repeating fake news? And that's a really interesting field of study that's exploding right now that we've included in our tests as well. So yes, they do, you know, if I had my way, you know, I would keep adding stuff to it, but that ultimately People don't have the patience for that. So at the same time as we're adding tests, we're figuring out for each case, for each client, what are we really trying to discover here and try to strip away things so it would be nice to have, but not essential. Great. I have one last question for you, Chris. With all the work you're doing now, how do you see behavioral science evolving over the next three to five years? The near term for behavioral science will be a combination, a tug of war. Behavioral science has really been here with us for a very long time. And if you read the original studies of somebody like the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, I mean, these studies go back 50 years. They're not new. But the book, like Nudge and the latest version of Nudge or Thinking Fast and Slow, these are new. So the behavioral science itself has been emerging and maturing for a half a century. 
But now when it's becoming more understandable and more people are picking up on it, you go through a classic kind of hype curve, the Gartner hype curve, where people at the beginning might be like, oh, that sounds a bit weird and nerdy. I'm not sure if I, eh. and then they look to their left and right and see competitors begin to adopt it. And then they see it at conferences and they go, oh my God, how do I get a piece of this? And then you go up in that hype curve where everybody wants a piece of it, but it becomes shallow and it becomes something that is too facile and not really as scientifically accurate anymore. And then you go through the disappointment period where people look at it and go, hey, it was the flavor of the month. What happened to behavioral science? And already, for example, this last week, a study by a very noted scientist, George Lowenstein, came out looking at what's wrong with some of the behavioral economics, what's wrong with some of our assumptions about nudge and nudging as a tactic. And this is important because science should also be in self-critical mode. So you will go through that phase and then the maturing that I think will happen next where you begin to see what is good and what is practical science versus what is a kind of feeding frenzy of a fad related to behavioral science. Neuroscience went through a bit of this. You saw every marketer wanting to do see brain scans and then a kind of second thought about that. Well, how accurate are these and how predictively accurate are these? And so a little bit of backpedaling on using brain scans for everything on every consumer, you know, because the excitement got out in front of the accuracy and the science. So I think in the near term, you're going to see some of that. So it's important that all of our colleagues in, in marketing, for example, read up themselves as well. Understand the smart and right questions to ask because how it is done, how the, the behavioral science is deployed is really crucial. Don't just buy it because it's called behavioral science. Look under the hood, under the bonnet, find out what's in there and figure out whether it's you know, going to be something not only that looks exciting, but is scientifically credible when you look into that. Now, near term, you're going to see a broadening of usage in this. I think at the very beginning, it started in two fields. It started in finance with behavioral finance, and it started in healthcare. Now, in healthcare, they've known about these things in behavioral science for quite a while because they were able to see why is it easier for some people to quit smoking than other people? Why do people start smoking in the first place? Is there something to do with how they are wired? And the answer is yes. So you would see a lot of this happen in finance and healthcare, but not so much in consumer products. In consumer products, it was more behavioralism not behavioral science. In other words, if, if I make it blue, does it change versus making it red? That's not quite the same thing. So you will see in the near term a broadening of the application of behavioral science together with a kind of proliferation of agencies offering it, which always is fraught with peril. Because when you have everybody claiming that what they do is science, it's not all going to be science. Some is going to be just quickly uh, packaged up little bits and pieces with a thin veneer of science. And that's where we need to be careful, both for us as an agency and for our clients, not to blow it in terms of the accuracy, the essential fundamental science that's in there, 
uh, and, and not get so swept up in the excitement and feeding frenzy of behavioral science that we fall prey to undermining that science. We've got to stay true to the science. So when you sum this all up, it's really about this. One, the real why. Why is it that humans do what they do or don't do what they should do, even in their own best interest? We can now identify it, just like software glitches, and figure out ways to help individuals, should they choose to, overcome these bugs and glitches in their own human wiring. It doesn't mean they're stupid or uneducated. It means they're human. And that's just part of our evolution, how we came to be this way. Second, we can really help marketers in a much more enhanced, evolved form of understanding individuals at scale through what we call the hidden who. That means decoding a sense-making genome that is not immediately obvious to the individual themselves. And so it takes a special kind of test to surface this. But when you have it, you've got a blueprint for better understanding this individual and individuals at scale, which means you change everything from messaging and message framing and tonality, even word choice to creative execution, like a master matchmaking so that you avoid a lot of wasted effort, wasted time, wasted resource, wasted money on trying options that are never going to work for that person. I really want to thank you very much, Chris, for, for your time. And I, I want to say thank you for being our first guest in this exciting series and giving us your insights on the cognitive profiler and how behavioral science can generate value for people, for brands, as well as for business. So thank you very much again, Chris. Thank you, Paul. If you've enjoyed listening to the show today, make sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for new episodes wherever you find your podcast. While you're at it, please rate the show and leave a review. I'm Paolo Mercado, and this has been Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting.